your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning and coming to chapter 14. If you're using one of our church Bibles under one of the seats, it's page 726. Our passage begins in verse 12 and goes to verse 25. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word has been read. I pray, Lord, that the words of your servant's mouth and the thoughts and intentions of all of our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young boy, probably no more than four or five years old, uh, I became fascinated with technology. And if I told you that I was born in the 80s, you might be inclined to think that I'm speaking of Nintendo or Atari or VHS or cassette tapes, for those of us who remember them. And I did enjoy all of those things, but what I'm speaking of this morning is something a little bit more out of the ordinary. Um, I had this fascination with my mom's curling iron. And it sounds odd, and let me explain. Um, (laughs) I don't know whether it was I thought it was a magic wand, or man, what a cool weapon to hit my brother with, or whatever the case may be, but um, I remember my mom, every day she'd get ready, she'd put the curling iron down, and she'd tell me, Tim, don't touch the curling iron. It's hot, you will hurt yourself, you cannot play with it. 
And, and probably that was the reason why I was so captivated by it. This was something forbidden. I wasn't allowed to play with it, and it looked so cool. Um, and I was determined as a five-year-old. I was determined to get my hands on that curling iron. And I waited patiently. Most mornings I didn't have an opportunity to do anything about it. I was in the bathroom with my mother. But one day came where we were going out to eat as a family um, for some occasion, and my parents were, were downstairs by the front door, and they were probably getting my, my younger brother in his car seat. And I was left upstairs all by myself in the bathroom with the curling iron. And I thought, this is my opportunity. And I went to grab it, and the words of my mom came back into my head, Tim, don't touch the curling iron. It's hot. You will hurt yourself. And I paused, and I can remember thinking, I don't know if this is hot. How do I find out? How do I test to make sure I don't hurt myself? And so I did what any five-year-old boy would do. I thought of what's the, the least harmful thing I could touch with this curling iron to make sure that it's not hot. Uh, I was smart enough to not grab it with my hand or touch it to my leg or, or something along those lines. Uh, but I made uh, an error, and, and I chose the tip of my nose as the testing place. Big mistake. See, my mom had just gotten ready before we left the house, and so the curling iron was very hot. Uh, I learned that very quickly. Touch, ow, right back down. But the damage had been done. Um, I did not somehow cry or, or scream. Um, I put it back in its place, and I quietly went downstairs and went right out the front door past my parents like nothing had ever happened. It probably didn't take them very long to figure out that something had happened in the bathroom because I had a burn on my nose, a pretty severe one. Within a couple of days, it had scabbed over. And unfortunately for me, it was right around Christmas time, so I was called Rudolph for the next couple of weeks. Um, but but it was, it was uh, not so much a traumatic experience, but one I like to reflect on from time to time. Not only is it endearing, you know, five-year-old Tim who burnt his nose on the mom's curling iron, um, but I think it's a good picture, at least in my life, of, of an experience where the, the consequences of my sin were staring at me right in the face, quite literally. I looked in the mirror, and that's what happened. Um, it was my disobedience that brought that to my face, although I didn't look at it that way. Uh, certainly, I, I'm sure that I had a million excuses for when my parents questioned me. I don't recall what I had said to them but a few that, that probably came to mind at the very least. How was I supposed to know it was hot? It's the curling iron's fault. Mom, why did you leave it there? It's my mom's fault. And mom, if you're watching this morning, I'm not blaming you for this, this circumstance. It was totally my decision. Or maybe even my plan was flawed. I should have used my, my, my brother as a, as a test dummy, guinea pig. But whatever the reason... Um, I thought it was. It, that wasn't the case. It was my sin that had caused this consequence, this, this burn, this physical pain to come upon me. See, I experienced the consequence of my sin. It was embarrassment and shame and hurt. And yet I still didn't want to admit that it was my disobeying my mom that had caused it. So we live in a world where things don't go the way that they, they should. We can all agree to that. We just lived through 14 months and continue to live through a global pandemic. 
You know, we fight for our lives against viruses and diseases. Injustices go unpunished all the time, as Adam prayed this morning. People die. Little kids get burned. The Eagles have won one Super Bowl in 60 years. Clearly, things don't go right in the world. But even though that this is obvious to us, your tendency and my tendency is to ignore the source of these defects. The problem is our sin, even though we don't want to think it as such. And in ignoring the source of the defects, we basically limit our need for redemption to something that we can fix on our own. And it leaves us craving for redemption that we can't find. And so the question before us is, what is the redemption that you need? What is the redemption I need? And that's what God wants to teach you in this morning's passage. The redemption you and I really need is something that only God can provide for us. And it's for a defect that is wholly ours. And so that's the title of my sermon, The Redemption That You Need. And let's begin by taking a look at what's happening in the story this morning. See, Jesus is concluding his earthly ministry. He's just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany with his disciples. And it's on the eve, the first day, rather, of the, of the Holy Week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And unbeknownst to them, and we know the whole story, Jesus is, is hours away from betrayal and crucifixion and death. And he has chosen, and, and I think that the text shows us clearly that, that this, this is not a coincidence. In God's providence, Jesus has chosen to go to the cross at Passover. And that's the context for what we read. It's a Passover meal. And we're going to take a look in a moment about what the Passover is, just a quick refresher from the Old Testament on what had happened and what God did in the Passover and why the disciples and Jesus are, are eating this Passover feast. Before we get there, I just wanted to, to quickly draw your attention, and hopefully you saw it. Look at God's sovereignty and his providence in, in what happens to prepare for this meal. Mark doesn't elaborate, and, and he, he play, puts it out there pretty plainly. But two disciples, and we know from Luke's gospel, this is Peter and John, asked Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover? Now, they're upstanding Jewish men. They know they're supposed to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so Jesus tells them, you're going to go into the city, and there's going to be a man when you enter the city carrying a jug of water. Friends, this would have been a, a rather rare occurrence. It was customary for women to go to the well to fetch water, not so much for a man. And so that two disciples showing up and a man carrying a jug of water happens to be there it wouldn't have been more than a coincidence, let alone the fact that he's expecting them and is going to show them to a house that, with a room that's been prepared for them. God's providence has come into play. And that room that, that is ready, the large upper room furnished and ready for Jesus and the disciples, it would have been also pretty difficult to come by at this time. See, as I mentioned, Jewish uh, people were supposed to be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. First century historian Josephus tells us that about two million people would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover. Rooms were hard to come by, friends. 
And yet here is a large upper room, large enough for Jesus and his 12 disciples, already furnished and ready to go. There was nothing that was going to stop Jesus from getting to this Passover feast. He providentially made sure of that. And so if it's so important for Jesus to be in Jerusalem and celebrating the Passover with his disciples, why is, why is this so significant? What is the Passover all about? So a quick Old Testament history lesson for you, and hopefully this is just a refresher, but back in, in Exodus 12, we have the institution of the Passover. And you don't need to turn there. Um, I'll, I'll just summarize it for you. G, um, the Egyptians had enslaved Israel, God's people. And God sent Moses, his servant, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so God sent plagues. And he sent nine plagues on Israel, if you recall. And still, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so finally, God sends a plague of, of judgment in the form of death. And he's going to send the angel of death, the Lord himself, through the land of Egypt. And the angel of death is going to strike down every firstborn throughout the entire land, from Pharaoh's house to the slaves' quarters to even the firstborn of all the livestock. And God, in his, in his mercy, in his love for his people, provides them a substitute. And he tells Moses to instruct the people, every household, to take a lamb that is a male lamb without blemish, one year old, and at twilight everyone was to slaughter their lamb and take the blood and sprinkle it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. And that night when the angel of death went through the land, he would see the blood and see the death, and he would pass over that house and spare the firstborn. The Lord puts it like this in Exodus 12. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the Passover was a warning of judgment to Egypt and, and Israel. God had provided a substitute. Every blood-stained door would be a sign of their obedience and their safety from divine judgment because they had put their trust in the remedy that God had provided for them. Additionally, this Passover was a promise of redemption. God delivered them first from death and then secondly from bondage. And because he had saved them and provided redemption for them, they therefore belonged to the Lord. John Stott puts it this way, redemption from death brought consecration to God. They belonged to him. They were to serve him and to love him and to worship him. And lastly, Passover meant there was a need for celebration. God said to his people, This day shall be for you a memorial day. 
and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And so what we see in our passage in Mark's gospel this morning is Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover, as they should. We expect this on one hand. But on the other hand, something new is happening here. And so what does God want you to learn about redemption from this text? Three things this morning, just briefly. First, the redemption that you need responds to a universal problem. Second, the redemption that you need is perfectly and personally fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the redemption you need requires your response. So first, the redemption you need responds to a universal problem. I'll put it this way. It's the redemption that all people need. Looking at the Passover, the first Passover, we see that it was judgment of God, not just on Egypt. Israel was spared from the first nine plagues. Judgment in the form of death was was upon them as well. Now, God had provided a way out, but that doesn't mean that the, the judgment wasn't there. One commentator puts it this way, the Passover powerfully symbolized God's claim on Israel. Because Pharaoh would not free God's firstborn son, Israel, God in judgment claimed the firstborn son in the house of Pharaoh and in every other family of Egypt. We might suppose that this judgment would pose no threat to Israel. In earlier plagues, Israel in the land of Goshen was spared. But we learn that the angel of death was sent to bring judgment on every Israelite home as well. Later in the ceremonial law given to Israel, the first fruits of the harvest and the firstborn of the livestock was viewed as representative of all the rest. So God put his claim upon it to signify that all belonged to him. You see, this judgment of God in, in the Passover wasn't just on Egypt, and it wasn't even just on the firstborn. It was on everyone. All people are in need of this redemption. Jews and Egyptians, godly and pagan, religious, non-religious, Christian, non-Christian. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, this is a universal problem. We see this also in our passage this morning. Do you find it interesting? I found it so interesting. Here they are in Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus and the disciples. He's orchestrated that they're actually able to keep the Passover feast, and and they sit down at the dinner table, and what's the conversation? Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. What? (laughs) That's our Passover dinner conversation, Jesus? We're sitting here to celebrate and remember what God has done for us in redeeming us, his people. And you're telling us that one of us is going to betray you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know who Jesus is speaking of in Mark's account of the gospel. He doesn't single out Judas, at least not at the meal. 
But we know that Judas, right after the meal, would go to betray Jesus. Peter, we'll see later in in Mark, in the coming weeks, would deny him. In fact, the other ten would all abandon him by the end of the night. See that in Mark 14, verse 50. The twelve closest men to Jesus on earth who ministered with him, were ministered to by him, all abandoned him. Friends, we're no different. The problem, the defect, our sin, can only be redeemed by God himself. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that brings us to our second point this morning. The redemption you need is personally and perfectly fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. See, I alluded to this earlier. They're eating the Passover meal, but it's new this time. See, this time the Passover is celebrated such that Jesus himself is presented to them as the Passover lamb. Did you see that in verse 22? As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. The broken sacrificial lamb. This time it is his blood that establishes and guarantees his followers' communion and fellowship with God. Look at verse 24. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This wasn't the lamb that was saving. This was Jesus. See, unlike an ordinary Passover meal, the only way for this blessing to come about is by his betrayal and death. The Bible elsewhere says that Christ is our Passover lamb. Paul calls him that in in his letter to the Corinthians. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter in his epistle, explains that our salvation is made possible only because the blood of Jesus is so precious that it is like a lamb without blemish. See, all this points to Jesus being the one that Isaiah prophesied about when he said that the Messiah would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter on whose shoulders our sins would be placed. See, blood was always the solution to man's sin whether it's your blood or someone else's, go all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, clothed in loincloths, where did they come from? Sacrifice, blood, blood was shed. Look at the Passover this morning. Lambs were slaughtered to provide redemption for God's people. See, that's why a sacrifice was needed and still is. Blood is needed And that's what Paul means when he says that Jesus' blood is the propitiation for our sins. See, he absorbs or he bears God's wrath against sin in your place and in mine. Occasionally we sing a hymn, and the first verse of, of the hymn goes like this, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. 
See, we all need Jesus' perfect redemption. Every other redemption that you seek will fail you. It will leave you feeling unfulfilled, empty, or wanting more. Our, our uh, firstborn daughter, you probably heard her this morning, um, Rebecca, she'll be turning one later this month. She's such a blessing to us. She brings us so much joy. But it wasn't that long ago, and, and many of you know our story, my wife Allie and, and I's story. Our home was marked more by sorrow and despair. See, after we were married, um, and actually it'll be five years this year, uh, you know, we, we did the newlywed checklist. Bought a house, started a family. Well, three miscarriages in three years brought a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow to our house. And we were tempted after each time to believe that we were victims, we were hopeless, we were in need of some type of redemption. We looked to doctors, we tried everything we could. But see, we were not victims and we were not hopeless. Both could be further from the truth. And although we did exactly what the doctor said, we knew, as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. See, death is inevitable in our lives, whether that's a few weeks old or 90 or 100 years old. We're not victims. And we're not hopeless because God the Father has provided his son, his firstborn, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, the redemption we needed was not from the defect of a family situation. The redemption we needed was from ourselves and our sin and our temptation to cling to things to make ourselves feel better. Even if we had never been blessed with our daughter, we have the hope of Jesus and we have life and we have joy and we have peace. So lastly, this morning, Jesus' perfect redemption requires a response. He tells us, take, eat, take, drink. He's given himself for you. Charles Spurgeon, in only the way that he can, put it this way. It is always the best plan to accept any good thing that is offered to you. If you're a very poor man and anybody offers you a shilling, I venture to give you this piece of advice. You take it. Do not stand and say to him, My dear sir, I think that indiscriminate charity is wrong. You've never inquired into my character and you don't, do not know whether I'm really one of the unemployed. If there is a shilling held out to you, my friend, you had better take it. Jesus has given his life for you. Take it. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritan preachers, put it this way. Adam died by eating. We live by eating. Friends, Jesus is available to us. Do we dare to take him? The redemption you need never needs to be repeated again. Jesus' blood shed once for the remission of all sin. 
This isn't like the Passover, friends. We don't need to sacrifice a lamb every year. The perfect Passover lamb was sacrificed once and for all for all of us. The redemption you need must be renewed daily, weekly, and that's what church is for. It's what the Lord's Supper is for. We see it instituted in Mark's Gospel this morning, and and we'll have the privilege of coming to the table later. It's a renewing feast. It strengthens us. But also remember that the redemption you need hasn't come yet and won't fully come in this life. It is still to come. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new in the kingdom of God. You might have noticed Pastor Phil says from time to time, we're taking the Lord's Supper, this is just a taste. The full feast, the full banquet awaits us in heaven. Lastly, friends, the redemption you need should be received today by faith. Don't wait. I urge you to trust in Christ for his perfect redemption, the redemption that you need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your provision of a substitute for us. Lord, your, your judgment, your wrath righteous, holy. We're deserving of it because of our great sin. But you have provided a way for us, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, our Passover lamb. Pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. You would encourage us, Lord. Would you help us to cling to Christ? Would you renew us through the work of your spirit, Lord? Help us to keep our eyes on heaven, Lord, where we will feast with you and with him. Until that day comes, Lord, we thank you for your church, for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that we'll partake of even this morning. How precious is that blood. Thank you for it. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.